A journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step, so the old saying goes. I've been thinking a lot lately about the long haul, about being in it for the long haul. Maybe that's what happens when you join a congregation that's been around for 350 years. There are a lot of long-haul projects in the foreground of our lives these days as we think about trying to reverse the erosion of civil rights and environmental integrity and basic civility. It's long-haul work to look for the energy to take the next steps in a journey that seems likely to go on a lot longer than we might have wanted to imagine it could. How does our drawing together help us to practice believing that we're really on the way? Where do we look to find what we need to help us take the next step in the long haul? I want to read you a favorite fragment of prose about the long haul from a writer I love named Annie Dillard, a scrap of story that gives the title to a small book of large essays called Teaching a Stone to Talk. Just a couple of paragraphs. The island where I live is peopled with cranks like myself. In a cedar shake shack on a cliff, but we all live like this, is a man in his 30s who lives alone with a stone he is trying to teach to talk. Wisecracks on this topic abound, as you might expect, but they're made, as it were, perfunctorily and mostly by the young, for in fact, almost everyone here respects what Larry is doing, as do I. It is, in fact, I assure you, a stone. It is, for I have seen it, a palm-sized oval beach cobble whose dark gray is cut by a band of white which runs around and presumably through it. Such stones we call wishing stones for reasons obscure, but I think not unimaginable. He keeps it on a shelf. Usually, the stone lies protected by a square of untanned leather, like a canary asleep under its cloth. Larry removes the cover for the stone's lessons, or more accurately, I should say, for the ritual or rituals which they perform together several times a day. No one knows what goes on at these sessions, least of all myself, for I know Larry but slightly, and that owing only to a mix-up in our mail. I assume that like any other meaningful effort, the ritual involves sacrifice, the suppression of self-consciousness, and a certain precise tilt of the will so that the will becomes transparent and hollow, a channel for the work. I wish him well. It is a noble work. Reports differ on precisely what Larry expects or wants the stone to say. I do not think he expects the stone to speak as we do and describe for us its long life and many or few sensations. I think instead that he's trying to teach it to say a single word 
such as cup or uncle. For this purpose, Larry has not, as some have seriously suggested, carved the stone a little mouth or furnished it in any way with a pocket of air which it might then expel. Rather, and I think he is wise in this, Larry plans to initiate his son, who is now an infant, into the work so that it may continue and bear fruit after his death. Here ends the reading. The long haul, the things we want to do, decide to do, things that will take us forever, things that will never finish or that will never finish with us. You live day by day down the years trying your best to be yourself, to do your work as you've been given to understand what that work is. And you hope for a day when you can see more than you can see on most days. Which brings me to Zacchaeus. I'm really interested in what gets Zacchaeus up that tree. Of course, as usual, the Bible doesn't tell us nearly as much as we'd like to know about why Zacchaeus climbed, what was in his mind and heart as he kicked and swung and stretched his short limbs up to a vantage point that would widen his limited view of the world. Did he want to keep the seeing that he did from up there as one way as possible? Maybe choosing a sycamore with lots of branches, trying to hide and see without being seen. He was, after all, not just any tax collector, but the chief toll taker in a busy mercantile city, Jericho, where he could have taken a big toll. And the story tells us that Zacchaeus was rich, so clearly he'd been keeping a big cut of the take for himself, which is how the empire incentivized the miserable job of confiscating as much of your neighbor's substance as possible. Think of Zacchaeus's friends and neighbors. Well, okay, a tax collector probably didn't have many friends. Think of the neighbors with nothing short of contempt for the short man who habitually invited himself into their houses on behalf of the empire and assessed their meager livelihood right out from under them. Had they been avoiding each other's gaze all those years on the streets of Jericho? When was the last time Zacchaeus had made eye contact with anybody? But something mattered enough to him to run on ahead of the commotion in the street around the rabbi and climb up there, which can't have been easy. What if Zacchaeus intended to take the risk of eye contact and climbed up to where he had a chance to see beyond the veil of contempt in which his neighbors held him? in which he perhaps held himself, climbed up to where he could risk seeing and being seen. The word on the street about this rabbi passing through, 
the not altogether favorable word, I should say. In fact, the often grumbled word on the street was that he ate with tax collectors and sinners, that he paid attention to people that most everyone else would have done whatever they could to avoid. Who knows how long Zacchaeus might have been waiting for a glimpse of someone who would see him. What if the day the rabbi passed through town turned out to be a day that a lot of other days, an infinite number of days, had been leading up to? There's an interesting little nuance of this story hidden in plain sight in Zacchaeus's name. In Hebrew, the name Zacchaeus means something like innocent, clean, pure. What is that? Irony? A tax collector? Innocent? Satire? A premonition, maybe? <laughs> Whatever it is, it's just one of the uncountable delicious details embedded in the Bibles that we gave our children this morning that ought to keep them and us entertained for the rest of our days. The meanings of names. How high do you have to climb in order to live up to the meaning of your own name? How long does it take to get to the point where you're willing to risk changing how you see yourself. When the moment of encounter comes between them, Jesus on the road, Zacchaeus up in the tree, let's say they make eye contact. Clearly, something happens between them. Something arcs in both directions. Jesus calls out, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm coming to your house today. Evidently, a different kind of audit is in the offing. And today, for Mr. Chief Tax Collector, the tide of assessment is flowing in quite a different direction. But before Jesus can even start the inventory, Zacchaeus knows where it's going. He's happy to open his home and his life to this visitor, scrambles eagerly down the tree, stops in his tracks, and right there in the streets of Jericho for everybody to hear, Zacchaeus says, Look, Rabbi, I'm giving half of what I own to the poor. And whatever I've extorted from people, I'll repay fourfold. How long does it take to climb to a view of your own life like that? What steps in the long haul take you to the freedom of living up to the meaning of your true name, the name God knows you by? A few weeks ago, an old friend of mine who'd heard about my coming to work here at Old South let me know that she'd watched one of our services on YouTube. She's known about Old South for years and shares the general admiration for our commitments to justice, mercy, and beauty. Shares those, ad, that admiration wholeheartedly. But it's interesting, my friend said. 
It's interesting that there's no regular part of your service there where people acknowledge their own part of the responsibility for the social ills that they decry every week. Hmm. Got me thinking. I venture to say that there are probably very few aspects of our current communal spiritual practice that would be more surprising to our forebears in this church than the absence of a moment of our own to acknowledge our part in the brokenness of the world. And I mention it on Reformation Sunday, wondering if you've noticed it, wondering what you think about it. It's often seemed to me that the part of church that people have the hardest time with is not the confession of how the social ills that we lament implicate us. No, it's the part about believing that God could ever make it all right within us and among us. Where do you go to make eye contact with the one who will receive your honest contrition in tender hands? Look kindly into your brave, unveiled eyes and offer the forgiveness you need to set you free. Where else but here? What else but in drawing together to name our not-yet-ness before God? And to receive, again, the greeting of the one who wants to come into the place where we live and live there with us, inhabit our choices, inspire our changes, help us with the ongoing, unfinished reformation of our systems and habits and policies and attitudes. Help us to be honest about our history and to do what needs to be done to make things right that aren't right yet, starting with inside ourselves. Sometimes our yearning to be seen as our best self remains on deposit earning interest for a long, long time. A lot of patient, and maybe not so patient, lessons Well, it's Reformation Sunday, and clearly we're in it for the long haul. So it's probably as good a time as any for us to tell the truth that we are not all that we could be, all that we should be or want to be, all that God created us to be. It's a truth that has to weigh heavily on our hearts, at least sometimes, a lot to heft up into a tree a lot that holds us back from living up to the true meaning of our names as children of God. I think about the ritual or rituals that we perform together in furtherance of our highest aspirations. The things we draw together to do that involve sacrifice and a certain precise tilt of the will so that the will becomes a channel for the work the things we do to ready ourselves to risk eye contact with ourselves, teaching the sometimes stone of our hearts to talk on the way to believing that things could change, 
that we might find a way to be living up to the name we carry together, the name of Christ, Christian, the sweet name, Christian. At the end of that story in the Gospel of Luke, after Zacchaeus has made his grand gesture of repentance and then followed it up with the first steps of restitution, reparations, after all that, at Zacchaeus' own doorstep, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. This one, too, is a child of Abraham. This one, too, even this one, is a child of Abraham. His true name. If the kindness and the courage in Jesus' eyes can first persuade Zacchaeus that he belongs to the human race, well, then maybe it can persuade Zacchaeus that all those other people around him are children of Abraham, too, just like him. And isn't that all really where it's going? It's long-haul work, for sure. If the heart sometimes seems like stone, well, at least we might think of it as a wishing stone for reasons obscure, but not, I think, unimaginable. So we'd better initiate our children into the work, give them a Bible, teach them that names have meaning, tell them what happened, tell them what you've been trying to do, what mistakes you made, and what you think maybe you've gotten right. I don't know how to survey that whole journey from this mere altitude, but I know I'm on it. At least, I hope I am. I hope you are on it, too. And I really do believe that after days and months and years and years of lessons and all that time listening to what might have seemed like silence, the day will come, it will, when even the stone of the heart We'll learn to talk. And alleluia for that day. Amen.